Hello, so we're up to chapter four today. Before I begin, um, someone asked if I'd be doing videos similar to these, but for people who haven't read the book. Um, and the answer, I suppose, is no, because that's the purpose of the book. Uh, if you haven't bought the book, um, if you haven't read the book, then I think that people should buy the book. And maybe this can help you to understand some of the parts. I often find it far better to have someone to discuss ideas with. I know there's people out there that maybe aren't surrounded by others who are interested in philosophical discussions. Um, and so maybe this can serve as a sort of support for that. So this is to help uh, people to understand the book. Um, it's an extremely dense book. It's probably one of the most fascinating, broad ranging, deep books that have ever been written. And so it is helpful to have someone else I think to bounce ideas off and so if you hear someone else reading it and commenting on it um, that can help but as for uh, people who haven't read the book at all and just wanting to spread the ideas out there um, certainly that's great um, if people do that but um, I'm not going to provide a summary I guess of the book if you want people can buy the book to get the summary at the end of every chapter is indeed a summary of that chapter. So if that's all you wanted to do, that'd be a, a great way of at least getting an overview of the Deutschian worldview, for want of a better word. So up to chapter four today. Chapter four is called Creation. I find that it's essentially in two parts. The first part is very much about biological knowledge and how it comes into being and its impact upon what is Neo-Darwinism or just evolution by natural selection is another way of putting that. And the second part is really about fine tuning, which is something I'm very interested in. I'm, I'm fascinated by this concept of the fine tuning of the physical constants of nature. There's been a number of books written specifically on that topic over the years, and David has a section here in chapter four, and he makes a good contribution to the corpus of knowledge that's been written there, some interesting philosophical ideas. So in chapter four, we do find that there are many misconceptions about how stuff in general is created that people have become subject to over the years of trying to understand the appearance of design in nature. You know, these misconceptions pervade not only biological evolution, but other kinds of creation, like knowledge creation, for example, which has a bearing on the psychology of learning, how it is our minds learn. So in chapter four, David does go through the usual Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens, the, the atheist objections to creationism. But he does something a little bit deeper. He goes more fundamental than just the biological. So in all cases, he's trying to understand how the knowledge has become instantiated where it is. In all cases, he's trying to understand how the knowledge has been created there. From my perspective, it's only possible for knowledge to be created in one broad way and I'm going to be a little bit lazy with the synonyms here, but essentially the idea is that you have a conjecture, which is a mutation of some existing idea or some existing trial in the case of biological organisms, possibly an adaptation or a change, a mutation of a gene in particular. So this conjecture or this mutation is iterated with criticism or selection. So this has a bearing on also bucket theories of mind, which are still operative everywhere and it shows how alternative epistemologies are false the spontaneous generation of anything that is sufficiently complicated is false and that's usually the error that's at the heart of 
any of these attempts to understand how it is that knowledge has come to be instantiated where it is. So in the case of biological evolution and biological knowledge, the issue there is that we cannot have spontaneous generation of life as we will see, because that would presume that the knowledge somehow has come from nowhere. Creationists will say it's come from God, but then we merely have to ask the question, how did God get the knowledge? And if he always had the knowledge, then that doesn't solve any problems. We may as well say that nature already had the knowledge there. Similarly, bucket theories of mind are spontaneous generation theories of how we learn. So someone who sits in a classroom and passively is supposed to be the recipient of the knowledge passed on by the teacher or through reading a book is a spontaneous generation concept. That merely by virtue of the empty vessel remaining in a room and someone pouring knowledge into the empty vessel that a person can learn. They won't because they need to conjecture the knowledge themselves first. And just as a related point, this will only happen if they're interested in what they're hearing or if they have some other kind of motivation. Um, but really they need interest. Uh, any other kind of motivation that you try and give them is probably going to be immoral. For example, if you say you'll be punished if you don't gain this knowledge. And this is why I continue to argue that IQ is really an interest quotient. It just tells people how interested an individual happens to be in doing the kind of tasks associated with intelligence tests, so-called intelligence tests. Really what we have is a class of tasks, questions, kinds of knowledge that people value and that, yes, sure, might help you to be successful out there in the world, but some people aren't interested in that kind of thing. It doesn't mean that their brains are any less capable of doing certain tasks. It means they're not interested in doing certain tasks. But this is taking us far afield, or well, it's taking us a little afield from um, the central points in chapter four. So let me get into the reading and, and to also at this point, uh, thank people for the emails that have been coming in. I've been enjoying responding to those, they're great. So chapter four, creation. I'll start from the beginning and read until I think it's time to comment. He writes, the knowledge in human brains and the knowledge in biological adaptations are both created by evolution in the broad sense. The variation of existing information alternating with selection. In the case of human knowledge, the variation is by conjecture and the selection is by criticism and experiment. In the biosphere, the variation consists of mutations, random changes, in genes and natural selection favours the variants that most improve the ability of their organisms to reproduce, thus causing those variant genes to spread through the population. And natural selection favours the variants that most improve the ability of their organisms to reproduce, thus causing those variant genes to spread through the population. That a gene is adapted to a given function means that few, if any, small changes would improve its ability to perform that function. Some changes might make no practical difference to that ability, but most of those that did would make it worse. In other words, good adaptations, like good explanations, are distinguished by being hard to vary while still fulfilling their functions. This is me speaking now. The concept of hard to vary, discovered by David Deutsch, the improvement beyond Popper applies equally here to biological evolution as it does to epistemology. Back to the book. Human brains and DNA molecules each have many functions, but among other things, they are general purpose information storage media. They are in principle capable of storing any kind of information. 
Moreover, the two types of information they respectively evolved to store have a property of cosmic significance in common. Once they are physically embodied in a suitable environment, they tend to cause themselves to remain so. Such information, which I call knowledge, is very unlikely to come into existence other than through the error-correcting process of evolution or thought. My commentary here now. That is so crucial to understand. There's a lot being packed into there, as always. What we learn there is a new way of viewing knowledge. Knowledge being this kind of entity that once it has appeared in a particular environment, it will tend to cause itself to remain in that environment. It will copy itself, it will replicate itself. It has this kind of robust capacity to avoid the usual vagaries of physical forces. A rock, once it comes out of a volcano or via whatever process that produces the rock, isn't able to cause itself to remain in existence. It's subject to erosion, it will disappear eventually. Typical species of organisms will tend to go extinct over time as the environment changes. Very little has the property in physical reality of tending to cause itself to remain in existence. One struggles to think of something else that tends to cause itself to remain physically embodied in the environment. So we have this concept of tending to cause itself to remain in the environment over time. Once embodied there in a suitable environment, they tend to cause themselves to remain so. And the other thing is that knowledge cannot come into existence other than through this process of evolution or thought. So the two kinds of knowledge there, this biological type knowledge that arrives on the scene due to evolution by natural selection, the process of variation and selection, or through thought, the products of minds that people have. And that process is conjecture and criticism or conjecture and refutation as Popper would say. My commentary over, let's continue reading. There are also important differences between those two kinds of knowledge. One is that biological knowledge is non-explanatory and therefore has limited reach. Explanatory human knowledge can have broad or even unlimited reach. Another difference is that mutations are random, while conjectures can be constructed intentionally for a purpose. Nevertheless, the two kinds of knowledge share enough of their underlying logic for the theory of evolution to be highly relevant to human knowledge. In particular, some historic misconceptions about biological evolution have counterparts in misconceptions about human knowledge. So in this chapter, I shall describe some of those misconceptions in addition to the actual explanation of biological adaptations, namely modern Darwinian evolutionary theory, sometimes known as Neo-Darwinism. Now there's a subtitle and it says Creationism. Creationism is the idea that some supernatural being or beings designed and created all biological adaptations. In other words, the gods did it. As explained in chapter 1, theories of that form are bad explanations. Unless supplemented by hard to very specifics, they do not even address the problem. Just as the laws of physics did it, will never win you a Nobel Prize, and the conjurer did it, does not solve the mystery of the conjuring trick. Before a conjuring trick is ever performed, its explanation must be known to the person who invented it. The origin of that knowledge is the origin of the trick. Similarly, the problem of explaining the biosphere is that of explaining how the knowledge embodied in its adaptations could possibly have been created. 
In particular, a putative designer of any organism must also have created the knowledge of how that organism works. Creationism thus faces an inherent dilemma. Is the designer a purely supernatural being, one who is just there, complete with all that knowledge, or not? A being who is just there would serve no explanatory purpose in regard to the biosphere, since then one could more economically say that the biosphere itself just happened, complete with that same knowledge, embodied in organisms. On the other hand, to whatever extent a creationist theory provides explanations about how supernatural beings designed and created the biosphere, they are no longer supernatural beings, but merely unseen ones. They might, for instance, be an extraterrestrial civilization, but then the theory is not really creationism unless it proposes that the extraterrestrial designers themselves had supernatural designers. Now there's a section about the idea that surely if there was a supernatural designer, they would have made things as good as possible, especially if it's a benevolent designer um, and an, an omniscient designer. And David uses the famous example of, so in mammalian eyes, for example, in, in human eyes, what you've got is an eye where the light sensitive part has its blood supply and the wiring, the nerves, in front of the light sensitive cells. So they're blocking some of the light. It didn't have to be this way. In other animals, it's not. And because the wiring, the blood supply is in the front of the retina, you then have to have a system where all those wires and, those, and all those blood vessels have to get back to the brain. So what they have to do is to dive in through the retina, through what is the optical blind spot, back to the brain, so via the optic nerve, back to the um, visual cortex. This is a terrible design. Okay, no engineer would come up with this. No intelligent designer would come up with this. I believe the octopus has an eye where all of the wiring is at the back. And so there's no degradation of the light coming in to their retinas. So evolution was able to get it right in one sense, but not right in the other. So if it was an intelligent designer, I don't know why he preferred octopuses to mammals. David actually says squids, yes. <laughs> there's also sections here about... Um, vestigial features, um, uh, things like uh, the appendix may or may not have a function in human beings. Um, it seems to be a degraded cecum as far as I remember. David talks about the fact that we need vitamin C and yet many other animals have genes for vitamin C that work, but our gene for vitamin C doesn't work. So we have to go out and get our vitamin C from plant material. So that seems to be a bad design. And it seems to be not a very benevolent thing for a, an all-powerful god to do, to give us features that generally cause us harm. Yeah, again, the appendix or the tonsils are, are a pretty good example. These are things that often have to be operated on in human beings and removed without too much harm. So why they're still there? Well, they're vestigial. They're left over from our evolutionary ancestors. That's the end of my commentary. Let's um, persevere with the book. The central flaw of creationism that its account of how the knowledge and adaptations could possibly be created is either missing, supernatural, or illogical, is also the central flaw of pre-enlightenment authoritative conceptions of human knowledge. In some versions, it is literally the same theory. With certain types of knowledge, such as cosmology or moral knowledge and other rules of behavior, being spoken to early humans by supernatural beings. In others, parochial features of society, such as the existence of monarchs in government, or indeed the existence of God in the universe, are protected by taboos or taken so uncritically for granted that they are not even recognized as ideas. And I shall discuss the evolution of such ideas and institutions in chapter 15. So I'm skipping quite a bit now. There's a long section on spontaneous generation, which was the attempt 
early on by people to try and explain how it is that biological organisms arose out of non-living material. I should say, we don't have a full explanation yet, or even any explanation, as to how inorganic material becomes self-replicating. There must be a natural process that allows it, but it's an open question. It can't in any case be spontaneous generation, which is the idea that you can leave alone a bunch of non-living stuff and eventually it will simply become a complicated organism. For what it's worth, they're trying to replicate the early conditions of the Earth in Miller-Urey type experiments. The Miller-Urey experiment was this attempt to take a whole bunch of inorganic material, carbon dioxide, methane, oxygen, nitrogen, etc., put it in a flask with some water, heat it up, shoot electricity through it, leave it for a little while, and see what happens at the end. And I think initially, in the first few iterations of the experiment anyway, people were extremely excited about the fact that they ended up producing amino acids. Of course, amino acids aren't life. Amino acids aren't life any more than a pile of bricks is the Sydney Opera House. If someone said to you, I'm doing some important work, I'm building the Sydney Opera House, and you say to them, show me your progress, and they say, sure, no worries, and they show you a brick, this is hardly evidence that they're well on their way to building the Sydney Opera House. In a similar way, Miller-Urey type experiments, at least the early ones, I haven't kept up with it, but the early ones were able to produce some very simple organic molecules, things like amino acids. Maybe they produced simple proteins, I don't know. They certainly didn't produce nucleic acids and they, didn't, they haven't yet produced anything that is self-replicating. So it's an interesting open question as to how easy it is for inorganic material given our laws of physics, to organize itself into self-replicating molecules. How that happens and how easy it is, we don't know. The Miller-Urey experiment seems to suggest it might be difficult. There are other kinds of ways of approaching the problem. For example, looking at the geology of the early Earth. If you look at the geology of the early Earth, what you find is that life arose here on planet Earth as soon as the conditions were even marginally okay for life to arise. You know, it was very soon after the Earth solidified on its surface. So it was very, very hot, completely inhostile, you know, some thousands of degrees Celsius on the Earth very early on. But as soon as it cooled down, the life appeared. And you can find this in geology. The question then from geology is, well, it seems like it rose as quickly as it possibly could here on Earth, which would suggest that it's rather easy for life to arise. We don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a simple example. Maybe it's very, very hard, but the fact that it arose quickly on Earth is interesting in light of the fact that the smartest biologists working for a long time now haven't been able to replicate the process in the lab. Okay, I'm going to read the section now, which is on page 83, and it's titled The Argument from Design. The argument from design has been used for millennia as one of the classic proofs of the existence of God, as follows. Some aspects of the world appear to have been designed, but they were not designed by humans. Since design requires a designer, there must therefore be a god. As I said, that is a bad explanation, because it does not address how the knowledge of how to create such designs could possibly have been created, who designed the designer and so on. But the argument from design can be used in valid ways too, and indeed its earliest known use by the ancient Athenian philosopher Socrates was valid. The issue was, Given 
that the gods have created the world, do they care what happens in it? Socrates' pupil, Aristodemus, had argued that they do not. Another pupil, the historian Xenophon, recalled Socrates' reply. Socrates, because our eyes are delicate, they have been shuttered with eyelids that open when we have occasion to use them, and our foreheads have been fringed with eyebrows to prevent damage from the sweat of the head, and the mouth set close to the eyes and nostrils as a portal of ingress for all our supplies. Whereas since matter passing out of the body is unpleasant, the outlets are directed hindwards, as far away from the senses as possible. I ask you, when you see all these things constructed, with such show of foresight, can you doubt whether they are products of chance or design? Aristodemus, certainly not. Viewed in this light, they seem very much like the contrivances of some wise craftsman, full of love for all living things. Socrates, and what of the implanting of the instinct to procreate, and in the mother, the instinct to rear her young, and in the young, the intense desire to live and the fear of death? Aristodemus, these provisions too seem like the contrivances of someone who has determined that there shall be living creatures. So my commentary on that before I go back to the book, um, uh, this is where I suppose uh, Richard Dawkins or any other evolutionary biologist would, would jump in rightly and say that this is a false dichotomy where Socrates says, can you doubt whether they are products of chance or design? And so he's, he's meaning there the exclusive or, it has to be one or the other. And of course, we know that it is neither of those things now. Okay, and so this is a trap that many people fall into. They can only see two options, and so therefore they conclude there are only two options. But your lack of imagination is not a refutation of the possibility that you're wrong. So let's go back to the uh, let's go back to the text. Socrates was right to point out that the appearance of design in living things is something that needs to be explained. It cannot be the product of chance, and that is specifically because it signals the presence of knowledge. How was that knowledge created? However, Socrates never stated what constitutes an appearance of design and why. Do crystals and rainbows have it? Does the sun or summer? How are they different from biological adaptations such as eyebrows? The issue of what exactly needs to be explained in an appearance of design was first addressed by the clergyman William Paley, the finest exponent of the argument from design. In 1802, before Darwin was born, he published the following thought experiment in his book, Natural Theology. He imagined walking across a heath and finding a stone, or alternatively a watch. In either case, he imagined wondering how the object came to exist. And he explained why the watch would require a wholly different kind of explanation from that of the stone. For all he knew, he said, the stone might have lain there forever. Today we know more about the history of the earth. So we should refer instead to supernova, transmutation, and the Earth's cooling crust. But that would make no difference to Paley's argument. His point was, that sort of account can explain how the stone came to exist, or the raw materials for the watch, but it could never explain the watch itself. A watch could not have been lying there forever, nor could it have formed during the solidification of the Earth. Unlike the stone, or a rainbow, or a crystal, it could not have assembled itself by spontaneous generation from its raw materials, nor could it be a raw material. But why not exactly, asked Paley. Why should not this answer serve for the watch as well for the stone? Why is it not as admissible in the second case as in the first? And he knew why. Because the watch not only serves a purpose, it is adapted to that purpose. Paley wrote, quote, 
for this reason and for no other, viz, that when we come to inspect the watch, we perceive what we could not discover in the stone, that its several parts are framed and put together for a purpose. For example, they are so formed and adjusted as to produce motion, and that motion so regulated as to point out the hour of the day. End quote. Back to the book. One cannot explain why the watch is as it is without referring to its purpose of keeping accurate time. Like the telescopes I discussed in Chapter 2, it is a rare configuration of matter. Skipping a little. So people must have designed that watch. Paley was of course implying that all of this is even more true of a living organism, say a mouse. Its several parts are all constructed and appear to be designed for a purpose. For instance, the lenses in its eyes have a purpose similar to that of a telescope of focusing light to form an image on its retina, which in turn has the purpose of recognising food, danger and so on. Actually, Paley did not know the overall purpose of the mouse, though we do now, see neo-Darwinism, which we're about to come to. But even a single eye would suffice to make Paley's triumphant point, namely that the evidence of apparent design for a purpose is not only that the parts all serve a purpose, but they were, but if they were slightly altered, they would serve it less well, or not at all. A good design is hard to vary. Quote, if the different parts had been differently shaped from what they are, of a different size from what they are, or placed after any other manner or in any other order than that which they are placed, either no motion at all would have been carried on in the machine or none which would have answered the use that is now served by it." End quote. So David says here, this is for my commentary, David says here that the knowledge there has come to be embedded in the watch. It's also embedded in the mouse as well. And so now I'll go back to the book. He writes, so how did all that knowledge come to be embodied in those things? As I said, Paley can conceive of only one explanation. That was his first mistake. Quote, the inference we think is inevitable, that the watch must have had a maker. There cannot be design without a designer, contrivance without a contriver, order without choice, arrangement without anything capable of arranging, subservancy and relation to a purpose without which, without that which could intend a purpose, means suitable to an end, without the end having ever been contemplated or the means accommodated to it. Arrangement, disposition of parts, subserviency of means to an end, relation of instruments to a use, imply the presence of intelligence and mind. We now, end quote, back to the book, we now know that there can be design without a designer, knowledge without a person who created it. Some types of knowledge can be created by evolution. I shall come to that shortly. But it is no criticism of Paley that he was unaware of a discovery that had yet to be made one of the greatest discoveries in the history of science. So David then um, goes on to speak about how Paley understood the problem, even if he didn't realise the solution, uh, and that the solution contained the problem because his solution was, of course, that there's an ultimate designer. So if you find a watch, then you're right to conclude that there must have been a designer. And Paley argued, well, therefore, if you find a mouse, then the mouse have, must have had a designer because the mouse is even more complicated than what the watch is. Um, so therefore, God exists. But it doesn't actually solve the problem because this ultimate designer itself must have had a maker. Uh, this is an objection that's been raised many, many times by many, many different people.
and, and David admits it. This isn't a proof of the non-existence of God. It just shows that that particular argument for God is a bad one. And then we move on to Lamarckism. Again, I'm not going to read the entire section here. Um, interesting though it is. Um, so I'm just going to skip to the main points. And so now we're, we're getting up to Lamarckism. I'm going to skip over a lot of it. David's writing about the first attempts to try and understand how it is that biological organisms seem well suited to the environments in which they're found. David writes, During the early years of the 19th century, the naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck proposed an answer that is now known as Lamarckism. Its key idea is that improvements acquired by an organism during its lifetime can be inherited by its offspring. Lamarck was thinking mainly of improvements in the organism's organs, limbs, and so on, such as, for instance, the enlargement and strengthening of muscles that an individual uses heavily and the weakening of those that it seldom does. Skipping a little. The Lamarckian explanation of giraffes is that when eating leaves from trees, whose lower-lying leaves were already eaten, stretch their necks to get at the higher ones. This supposedly lengthened their necks slightly, and then their offspring inherited that trait of having slightly longer necks. Thus, over many generations, long-necked giraffes evolved from ancestors with unremarkable necks. In addition, Lamarck proposed that improvements were driven by a tendency built into the laws of nature towards ever greater complexity. The latter is a fudge, for not just any complexity could account for the evolution of adaptations, it has to be knowledge. And so that part of the theory is just invoking spontaneous generation, unexplained knowledge. Lamarck might not have minded that, because like many thinkers of his day, he took the existence of spontaneous generation for granted. So I'll pause there. There are all sorts of problems with Lamarckism, but this makes me think of another misconception people have about evolution, that it's directed towards ever greater complexity. What kind of complexity, we're never really told, but people have this notion that perhaps it's moving towards greater complexity in forms of more intelligence or bigger brains, something like that. And so people often think that evolution is directed towards creating more intelligent species. And so in our evolutionary history, when we look back, there was some other kind of hominid that had a slightly smaller brain and before that a, a, a shorter, smaller brained hominid and so on, stretching back to some kind of ape thing and then perhaps to some kind of monkey thing and then to some other kind of simple mammal and then some other kind of amphibian thing and some other kind of fish thing. The brains get smaller and smaller and smaller. So it appears as though, from our perspective, looking back, that evolution has led to us. So why shouldn't we find aliens out there that have big brains? Surely if it's happened here on Earth, it'll happen somewhere else out there as well. Now there are many, many problems with this argument, but I just want to consider the giraffe for a moment. If you've got an anthropomorphic giraffe, and the anthropomorphic giraffe is able to contemplate its own existence and evolutionary history, it might look back at its ancestors and notice that all of those have had slightly shorter necks that became longer and longer and longer, culminating in a really long neck. So then the question becomes for a giraffe that's interested in astrobiology, should we expect out there in the universe to find other things with really long necks? After all, if it happened here on Earth, it'll happen elsewhere out there. But when you look around here on the Earth at all the species that are alive today, you don't find many with long necks. Maybe you can consider certain kinds of dinosaurs. So maybe it's a possibility. But it's not like it's a convergent feature of evolution typically. Not many species have long necks. 
with humans, it's even worse. It's even worse. It doesn't seem like any other species, perhaps, had the intelligence that we did. Perhaps there were. There might have been Neanderthals or Cro-Magnon Man or something like that. But I would guess that all of these kind of hominids actually had an intelligent common ancestor. And so that intelligent common ancestor, that's the thing that I'm interested in finding out whether or not there might have been independent, big-brained, general-purpose explainers out there. This argument, by the way, is due to um, Charles Lineweaver, Charlie Lineweaver, who's an astrophysicist, astrobiologist at the Australian National University, and he calls it the Planet of the Apes hypothesis. And he actually uses the example of an elephant and the length of trunks, and he, he does a good statistical analysis of... Um, long trunked things over time and if you look at the length of trunks leading to elephants you might very well conclude that this is what evolution is about it's about making ever longer trunks but that is simply confirmation bias from the perspective of an elephant and so perhaps we have a similar kind of confirmation bias when it comes to human beings we're the only species we know of that is intelligent that's alive today so if we go looking out there into outer space for intelligent aliens we might be sorely disappointed. They might not be any out there, even if the entire cosmos is filled with, with bacteria-covered planets, none of them might evolve intelligence. Yep, there's more to say on that. I'll leave it for another time. Back to the text. I'm skipping a lot more now. David writes, The fundamental error being made by Lamarck has the same logic as inductivism. Both assume that new knowledge, adaptations and scientific theories respectively, is somehow already present in experience or can be derived mechanically from experience. But the truth is always that knowledge must first be conjectured and then tested. That is what Darwin's theory says. First, random mutations happen. They do not take account of what problem is being solved. Then natural selection discards the variant genes that are less good at causing themselves to be present again in future generations. Okay, so now we get to the section subtitled Neo-Darwinism. And I'm going to read a fairly lengthy bit here because I think it's uh, very instructive to get the David Deutsch perspective on neo-Darwinism. Okay, so David writes, The central idea of neo-Darwinism is that evolution favours the genes that spread best through the population. There is much more to this idea than meets the eye, as I shall explain. A common misconception about Darwinian evolution is that it maximises the good of the species that provides a plausible but false explanation of apparently altruistic behaviour in nature, such as parents risking their lives to protect their young, or the strongest animals going to the perimeter of a herd under attack, thereby decreasing their own chances of having a long and pleasant life or further offspring. Thus it is said, evolution optimises the good of the species, not the individual. But in reality, evolution optimises neither. To see why, consider this thought experiment. Imagine an island on which the total number of birds of a particular species would be maximised if they nested at, say, the beginning of April. The explanation for why a particular date is optimal will refer to various trade-offs involving factors such as temperature, the prevalence of predators, the availability of food and nesting materials, and so on. Suppose that initially, the whole population has genes that cause them to nest at that optimum time. That would mean those genes were well adapted to maximising the maximum. That would mean that those genes were well adapted to maximising the number of birds in the population, which one might call maximising the good of the species. Now suppose that this equilibrium is disturbed 
by the advent of a mutant gene in a single bird which causes it to nest slightly earlier, say at the end of March. Assume that when a bird has built a nest, the species' other behavioural genes are such that it automatically gets whatever cooperation it needs from a mate. That pair of birds would then be guaranteed the best nesting site on the island, an advantage which, in terms of the survival of their offspring, might well outweigh all the slight disadvantages of nesting earlier. In that case, in the following generation, there will be more March nesting birds, and again, all of them will find excellent nesting sites. That means that a smaller population than usual of the April nesting variety will find good sites. The best sites will have been taken by the time they start looking. In subsequent generations, the balance of the population will keep shifting towards the March nesting variants. If the relative advantage of having the best nesting sites is large enough, the April nesting variant could even become extinct. If it arises again as a mutation, its holder will have no offspring, because all sites will have been taken by the time it tries to nest. Thus the original situation that we imagined, with genes that were optimally adapted to maximising the population, benefiting the species, is unstable. There will be evolutionary pressure to make the genes become less well adapted to that function. This change has harmed the species in the sense of reducing its total population because the birds are no longer nesting at the optimum time. It may thereby also have harmed it by increasing the risk of extinction, making it less likely to spread to other habitats and so on. So an optimally adapted species may in this way evolve into one that is less well off by any measure. Okay, so I'll just pause there. This is a powerful way of explaining the selfish gene idea that Richard Dawkins popularized. So this idea of the selfish gene uh, stands in stark contrast to other people who argue for group selection or even species selection. I think Stephen Jay Gould was one of the most famous proponents that argued against Dawkins when it came to this concept of the selfish gene. Here David is using this thought experiment about a bird that is, that, a, that for the best of the species, the bird should be nesting sometime in April. You know, it's good weather and you know, there's lots of food and so on. But if there was a mutation in the gene that controls when a bird nests, such that the bird didn't nest in April, which is optimum for the bird, but instead started nesting in March, then the birds would find there are more nesting sites, especially if there's a limited number of nesting sites. And so if the mutant gene causes the bird an individual bird to start nesting earlier, then that bird might have offspring which is more likely to survive because there's less competitors at that time. So the, I've got birds outside right now making noise. Um, so what can happen then is that those particular birds have an advantage over the ones that are nesting in April which are competing for food and so on. And so the ones in March are able to have more offspring. And so if these birds start nesting earlier, namely in March sometime, then by the time the April birds come around and decide to nest, perhaps, so this, this bird, okay, uh, let's say it's able to find a mate pretty quickly, which has a random mutation in the gene that causes it to nest, such that it nests in March instead of April, will have offspring that will also have that variant of the gene. And because in March, if they're nesting in March, and they're not competing with other birds, then 
the offspring are likely to survive more easily because the parents aren't competing for nests with other birds. So they have offspring, which themselves have the variant, and so it goes on. And so you end up with this situation where the birds are nesting during March, which is not optimal for the species. And indeed, when the April nesting birds decide to nest in April, all the nests are taken by the birds that have nested in March. And this isn't good for the species because the optimal time by the terms of the thought experiment is April. That's where all the food is. That's where just the ideal conditions are. March is not ideal. But the gene itself, the gene has been successful and it's pushed away the gene that was useful for the species in favor of the selfishness of the gene itself. The gene itself is the thing that has persisted and it could cause the species of April nesting birds to go extinct. And then you'd essentially have kind of a new species. You'd have March nesting species, which in the long run, the March nesting species probably wouldn't be, wouldn't thrive as well. And they wouldn't thrive as well because that's not the optimum time for these particular bird species to nest. I'll keep reading. So back to the book. If a further mutant gene then appears, causing nesting still earlier in March, the same process may be repeated, with the earlier nesting genes taking over and the total population falling again. Evolution will thus drive the nesting time ever earlier and the population lower. A new equilibrium would be reached only when the advantage to an individual bird's offspring of getting the very best nesting site was finally outweighed by the disadvantages of slightly earlier nesting. That equilibrium might be very far from what was optimal for the species. A related misconception is that evolution is always adaptive, that it always constitutes progress, or at least some sort of improvement in useful functionality, which it then acts to optimize. This is often summed up in a phrase due to the philosopher Herbert Spencer, and unfortunately taken up by Darwin himself, the survival of the fittest. But as the above thought experiment illustrates, that is not the case either. Not only has the species been harmed by this evolutionary change, every individual bird has been harmed as well. The birds using any particular site now have a harsher life than before because they are using it earlier in the year. Skipping a little. What exactly has the evolution of those birds achieved during that period? It has optimized not the function of adaptation of a variant gene to its environment, the attribute that would have impressed Paley, but the relative ability of the surviving variant to spread through the population. An April nesting gene is no longer able to propagate itself to the next generation, even though it is functionally the best variant. The early nesting gene that replaced it may still be tolerably functional, but it is fittest for nothing except preventing variants of itself from procreating. From the point of view of both the species and all its members, the change brought about by this period of evolution has been a disaster. But evolution does not care about that. It favors only the genes that spread through the population. So again, my commentary here now, wonderfully succinct, very well explains what the process of evolution by natural selection is in terms of genetic selection. It's not about which species will survive. It's not about group selection. It never is. It's about genes surviving. Okay. Skipping a little and back to the text, David writes, Is it sheer luck then 
that most genes do usually confer some, albeit less than optimal, functional benefits on their species and on their individual holders. No, organisms are the slaves or tools that genes use to achieve their purpose of spreading themselves through the population. That is the purpose that Paley and even Darwin never guessed. Genes gain advantages over each other, in part by keeping their slaves alive and healthy, just as human slave owners did. Slave owners were not working for the benefit of their workers, of their workforces, nor for the benefit of individual slaves. It was solely to achieve their own objectives that they fed and housed their slaves, and indeed forced them to reproduce. Genes do much the same thing. In addition, there is the phenomena of reach. When the knowledge in a gene happens to have reach, it will help the individual to help itself in a wider range of circumstances and by more than the spreading of the gene strictly requires. That is why mules stay alive even though they are sterile. So it is not surprising that genes usually confer some benefits on their species and its members and do often succeed in increasing their own absolute numbers. Nor should it be surprising that they sometimes do the opposite. But what genes are adapted to, what they do better than almost any variant of themselves, has nothing to do with the species or the individuals, or even their own survival in the long run. It is getting themselves replicated more than rival genes. Now we move directly to the next section, which is an especially David Deutsch take on neo-Darwinism. So he's taking the work of Richard Dawkins a step further. David writes, he's called the section Neo-Darwinism and Knowledge and rights. Neo-Darwinism does not refer, at its fundamental level, to anything biological. It is based on the idea of a replicator, anything that contributes causally to its own copying. For instance, a gene conferring the ability to digest a certain type of food causes the organism to remain healthy in some situations where it would otherwise weaken or die. Hence, it increases the organism's chances of having offspring in the future and those offspring would inherit and spread copies of the gene. Ideas can be replicators too. For example, a good joke is a replicator. When lodged in a person's mind, it has a tendency to cause that person to tell it to other people, thus copying it into their minds. Dawkins coined the term memes, rhymes with dream, dreams, for ideas that are replicators. Most ideas are not replicators. They do not cause us to convey them to other people. Nearly all long-lasting ideas, however, such as languages, scientific theories and religious beliefs, and the ineffable states of mind that constitute cultures such as being British or the skill of performing classical music, are memes or memeplexes, collections of interacting memes. I shall say more about this in chapter 15. The most general way of stating the central assertion of the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution is that a population of replicators, subject to variation, for instance by imperfect copying, will be taken over by those variants that are better than their rivals, causing themselves to be replicated. This is a surprisingly deep truth, which is commonly criticised either for being too obvious to be worth stating, or for being false. The reason, I think, is that although it is self-evidently true, it is not self-evidently the explanation of specific adaptations. Our intuition prefers explanations in terms of function or purpose. What does a gene do for its holder, or for its species? But we have just seen that genes generally do not optimise such functionality. Yeah. So the knowledge embodied in genes is knowledge of how to get themselves replicated at the expense of their rivals. Genes often do this by imparting useful functionality to their organism. And in those cases, their knowledge incidentally includes knowledge about that functionality. 
functionality in turn, is achieved by encoding into genes regularities in the environment, and sometimes even rule of thumb approximations to laws of knowledge, in which case the genes are incidentally encoding that knowledge too. But the core of the explanation for the presence of a gene is always that it got itself replicated more than its rival genes. Non-explanatory human knowledge can also evolve in an analogous way. Rules of thumb are not passed on perfectly to the next generation of users, and the ones that survive in the long run are not necessarily the ones that optimize the ostensible function. For instance, a rule that is expressed in an elegant rhyme may be remembered and repeated better than one that is more accurate but expressed in ungainly prose. Also, no human knowledge is entirely non-explanatory. There is always at least a background of assumptions about reality against which the meaning of a rule of thumb is understood, and that background can make some false rules of thumb seem plausible. Explanatory theories evolve through a more complicated mechanism. Accidental errors in transmission and memory still play a role, but a much smaller one. That is because good explanations are hard to vary even without being tested, and hence random errors in the transmission of a good explanation are easier for the receiver to detect and correct. The most important source of variation in explanatory theories is creativity. For instance, when people are trying to understand an idea that they hear from others, they typically understand it to mean what makes most sense to them, or what they are most expecting to hear, or what they fear to hear, and so on. Those meanings are conjectured by the listener or reader and may differ from what the speaker or writer intended. In addition, people often try to improve explanations, even when they have received them accurately. They make creative amendments spurred on by their own criticism. If they then pass the explanation on to others, they usually try to pass on what they consider to be the improved version. So this is one of those sections where I really need to pause. Embedded amongst the rest of the text, which is great, is this real gem. I don't know that Popper spent much time trying to explain the psychology of learning, but here David really has gone to the heart of the matter. He's brought to bear Popperian epistemology to the process of learning. People are not taking this seriously that are interested in the question about how people learn or trying to maximize learning, let's say. So I, I'm never going to make a habit of rereading things. After all, people can just rewind the video. But this is so important, I think I need to emphasize it again. So David's talking about understanding. We may as well say learning here. So let me just read, let me just read those very few sentences again because they're very dense, they have this amazing idea. He writes, when people are trying to understand an idea that they hear from others, so for example, from a lecturer or from a teacher or from a parent or from a friend, you're just trying to understand something, how is it that you learn? Well, what he says here is that people typically understand, that the listener typically understand it, the, the thing that they're trying to learn, they typically understand it to mean what makes most sense to them, or what they are most expecting to hear, or what they fear to hear, and so on. Okay, so it could be any number of things. You have these expectations about what you're about to hear, and that's what you understand. You can't just gain understanding from the message that's coming to you. You have to bring your understanding to the message. Those meanings are conjectured by the listener or reader and may differ from what the speaker or writer intended. So you're trying to teach someone something. You're trying to help someone learn in some way. It's not a matter of you speaking ever more clearly or ever more loudly or 
it's not a matter of your intentions of what you're expecting the person to learn it's a matter of what they're expecting to hear which is a profound idea people often try to improve explanations even when they have received them accurately they make creative amendments spurred by their own criticism i have personally experienced this a lot that i can explain something and the listener does a far better job than i could ever have done in explaining that particular concept because they've understood it in a way that is very different to what i understand it and their way is more parsimonious their way is free of the kind of errors that i was bringing to my explanation so it's absolutely true it's the expectations of the person that's doing the learning that shapes what it is they understand a particular concept to be you can't pass on the concept you can only really pass on the message you can attempt to transmit but the receiver is the thing that's doing the error correction i'm going to continue reading but he's about to speak let's write a little bit more about um a little bit more about understanding but just to, to link that last paragraph with the next one um, it does really seem to me to be the case that when people try and understand each other what each other is saying that if I use certain words in perfect English and you are a perfectly fluent English speaker as well that what you hear might be a certain set of words which go into your ears converted into electrical signals passed into your brain then into your mind what your mind then does is an absolute mystery for the most part but your way of viewing the world even though we're using exactly the same language could be vastly different that what you understand certain words to actually mean could be quite different to what i understand them to mean and so an act of translation goes on that when I use a word which labels a particular concept, although you understand the word, it could label it an ever so slightly different or perhaps a completely different concept in your mind. And so then when you respond to me, you're responding to the concept you understand the word to label. And so when I hear your response, I'm assuming that the words that you're using now, which could be exactly the same word that I've just used in conveying something to you, is actually labeling a different concept than the one that I thought it was labeling. So as Popper would say, you cannot speak in such a way as to not be misunderstood. Everyone can be speaking precisely the same language, perfectly accurately, perfectly fluently, but still talking about different things even though they're using the same words. I don't know how common this is, but I do think it's an important problem that we have in attempting to understand each other. Human beings are mysterious. As Jaron Lanier would say, we're infinite wells of mystery. You can just keep on discovering more and more and more about people, and we don't seem to get to the end. I think problems are soluble, but I do think he has a point here that because of creativity, uh, and creativity is kind of this infinite thing with infinite reach, that perhaps understanding someone else, just like perfectly understanding anything, um, it's impossible but in particular understanding something with arguably infinite complexity like a human mind is even more challenging but exciting as well okay continue unlike genes many memes take different physical forms every time they are replicated people rarely express ideas 
in exactly the same words in which they heard them. They also translate from one language to another, and between spoken and written language and so on. Yet we rightly call what is transmitted the same idea, the same meme, throughout. Thus in the case of most memes, the real replicator is abstract, it is the knowledge itself. This is, in principle, true of genes as well. Biotechnology routinely transcribes genes into the memories of computers where they are stored in a different physical form. Those records could be translated back into DNA strands and implanted in different animals. The only reason this is not yet a common practice is that it is easier to copy the original gene. But one day the genes of a rare species could survive its extinction by causing themselves to be stored on a computer and then implanted into a cell of a different species. I say causing themselves to be stored because the biotechnologist would not be recording information indiscriminately, but only information that met a certain criterion, such as gene of endangered species. The ability to interest biotechnologists in this way would then be part of the reach of the knowledge in those genes. So both human knowledge and biological adaptations are abstract replicators, forms of information which, once they are embodied in a suitable physical system, tend to remain so, while most variants of them do not. The fact that the principles of neo-Darwinist theory are, from a certain perspective, self-evident, has itself been used as a criticism of the theory. For instance, if the theory must be true, how can it be testable? One reply, often attributed to Haldane, is that the whole theory would be refuted by the discovery of a single fossilised rabbit in a stratum of Cambrian rock. However, that is misleading. The import of such an observation would depend on what explanations were available under the given circumstances. For instance, misidentifications of fossils and of strata have sometimes been made, and would have to be ruled out by good explanations before one could call the discovery a fossilised rabbit in Cambrian rock. Even given such explanations, what would have been ruled out by the rabbit would not be the theory of evolution itself, but only the prevailing theory of the history of life and geological processes on Earth. Suppose, for instance, that there was a prehistoric continent isolated from the others on which evolution happened several times as fast as elsewhere, and that, by convergent evolution, a rabbit-like creature evolved there during the Cambrian era. And suppose that the continents were later connected by a catastrophe that obliterated most of the life forms on that continent and submerged their fossils. The rabbit-like creature was a rare survivor, which became extinct soon afterwards. Given the supposed evidence, that is still an infinitely better explanation than for instance, creationism or Lamarckism, neither of which gives any account of the origin of the apparent knowledge in the rabbit. So what would refute the Darwinian theory of evolution? Evidence which, in the light of the best available explanation, implies knowledge came into existence in a different way. For instance, if an organism was observed to undergo only, or mainly, favourable mutations as predicted by Lamarckism or spontaneous generation, then Darwinism's random variation postulate would be refuted. If organisms were observed to be born with new, complex adaptations for anything, of which there were no precursors in their parents, then the gradual change prediction would be refuted, and so would Darwinism's mechanism of knowledge creation. If an organism was born with a complex adaptation that has survival value today, yet was not favoured by selection pressure in its ancestry, say an ability to detect and use internet weather forecasts to decide when to hibernate, then Darwinism would again be refuted. A fundamentally new explanation would be needed, facing more or less the same unsolved problem that Paley and Darwin faced. We should have to set about finding an explanation that worked. Okay, so this is this... Some might think it's a controversial point. I 
don't know. I don't know that it matters. I, I make a big deal, as many people interested in the philosophy of science do, about the line of demarcation between science and non-science. When it comes to this question about neo-Darwinism, Darwinism broadly speaking, um, and whether or not it's falsifiable, um, given that David has just said, well, rabbits in the Precambrian uh, would not falsify the theory, and then ask the question, well, what would? Well, evidence that um, would suggest that you only ever had favorable adaptations. <clears throat> so that's possible, but some people still argue that, well, perhaps it's just this thing called a um, research framework. So, you know, some people argue about whether or not the theory of evolution by natural selection, Darwinism, neo-Darwinism, whether it's a scientific theory or actually something deeper than a scientific theory, sometimes called a research program. Now, I don't think it really matters ultimately um, whether it's the framework within which we do biology or whether it is a scientific explanation subject to the usual test, the usual experimental test that we can perform on any scientific theory. Just so happens, coincidentally, I'm reading a book by the philosopher and um, or bio, uh, biology philosopher, uh, Michaelis Michael, uh, professor at Michaelis Michael at the University of New South Wales here in Australia. He's written a book uh, just recently um, called Evolution by Natural Selection, Confidence, Evidence and the Gap. Now, Michaelis has a few problems with Popper and with falsificationism and, and indeed to, to some extent is a proponent of Stephen Jay Gould's view. It's good to read people who you disagree with. But I just wanted to take a moment just to read his section here of his book. It's subtitled, Is Evolutionary Theory Falsifiable? So let me just read what Michaelis has written. He writes, The question we started with is, Is Evolutionary Theory Science? Takes on a Papirian guise as, Is Evolutionary Theory Falsifiable? But this is too coarse grain to be answered. There are many different evolutionary theories we can, can, can consider, and we can ask of each of them, whether it is falsifiable. So Michaelis's claim is that the different evolutionary theories might be considered to be, is the theory that evolution has taken place falsifiable? Is the theory that the human chin evolved falsifiable? Is the theory that evolution has involved natural selection falsifiable? Is the theory that the human chin evolved through natural selection falsifiable? The theory that evolution has taken place is a historical theory. It says that the biological world has evolved. It says that the biological world has changed over time. Is it falsifiable? To be falsifiable is to be able to specify an observation that would refute the theory. It might be thought that this would not be falsifiable. However, a moment's reflection should convince you that you can imagine possible evidence that would refute the theory that evolution has taken place. In this case, it is easy to find such a piece of possible evidence. What if the fossil record never revealed any changes? Were the fossil record to be just like the present organisms, then the theory that there has been biological evolution would be falsified. In fact, the fossil record does show that at different times the biological world has been exemplified by different organisms. Therefore, this theory is in fact falsifiable. We can specify refuting observations that would have led to the theory being rejected. The observations did not take place, but that does not mean the theory is not falsifiable, but only that it is not yet falsified. What about the theory that the human chin evolved is falsifiable? This theory is also a historical theory. It says that at one time organisms existed with no chins, and that later descendants had chins. There are issues with deciding which types of organism are ancestral to which, but one thing we could predict 
to have seen in the fossil record that would lead to this theory being rejected is if all species in the lineage allied with the hominin lineage had chins. Indeed, we could have falsifying evidence were chins to be found in the hominid lineage regardless of whether they are directly ancestral to our species. Just as we might say that there have been changes to the heart in humans were we to find that humans evolved features or structures novel to their hearts, we do not say that the heart evolved in humans when all vertebrates had hearts. So the theory that the chin evolved in humans is falsifiable. Again, there are observations we could have observed that would have told against that theory. It is important to note that saying that a theory is falsifiable does not mean that if it were false, then there would in fact be some observable evidence that tells you the theory is false. There may be many circumstances in which you cannot tell whether a particular theory is false, and only a few in which you can tell the theory is false. Such a theory is nevertheless still falsifiable. What about the theory that natural selection has been involved in evolution? This is a historical theory. Once again, it is about what happened in the past, but it is not just about what happened. It is about why what happened happened. Saying that something evolved by natural selection involves identifying the mechanism that drove that change. Is that visible? Is it important to see that it is not visible? In fact, there is a general issue with causation. What we aspire to in science is more than just a catalogue of what happened when. Although finding out what happened when is often hard enough. In scientific endeavours, we do try to discern why things happened, the causal explanations. Since Hume, we have known that this is very difficult. We see constant conjunctions easily, but finding causation is much more difficult. Or rather, getting clear what we need to establish to have established the causal link is the difficult question. One idea, coming from Hume himself, is about what happens when we manipulate the system. Hume famously gives two versions of the nature of causation. The first is entirely empirical. It is just that A causes B when A-type events are constantly conjoined with B-type events, and A and B are spatio-temporally contiguous, and we come to expect B when we perceive A. The second account involves counterfactuals and suggests that A causes B if they are spatio-temporally contiguous and manipulating A manipulates B. Therefore, were A not to occur, then B would not either. Exploring the science, metaphysics and epistemology of causation is not a small topic. It may be enough to say that finding the constant conjunctions is hard enough in science. Finding causal relations is harder still. However, here a strange fact needs to be highlighted. This theory that we have, this theory that we have decided is not falsifiable is in fact that conclusion of Darwin's key argument for natural selection. Darwin argued for this conclusion from two premises that we saw were empirical and falsifiable. The first, that there is an excess of young relative to breeding individuals. The second is that there is variation and that the variations are heritable. Each of these was empirically testable, even in Darwin's day, and his evidence for both was, was copious. Darwin also used another premise that amounted to an analytic claim. If any variations help their bearers in the struggle for existence, then these will be fitter and have a higher tendency to survive. From these three, together with a law of large numbers type hidden premise, he derived the conclusion that natural selection would have taken place. Okay, so that's what uh, Michaelis Michael from Sydney happens to say about evolution by natural selection and whether or not it's falsifiable. Of course, I would have some issues with uh, the way he's presented what causation is there. It sounds inductivist to me. Nevertheless, um, as he admits, there is a there's really a problem there with trying to understand this concept of causation. He does admit that science is very much about explanation. I don't know if he's aware of what hard to vary is about. The book is an interesting one. There's a lot there about um, falsification and science. Uh, as I say, um, I don't necessarily agree 
with it at all. Nevertheless, it's it's, it's very interesting if you can get hold of the book. Um, it it's it it's not it's not a very long book. It's a hundred and forty something pages. But going back to the beginning of infinity now, um, the next section is about fine tuning, and I'll leave that until next time. But what was really interesting here in this part is the symmetry between the way in which human knowledge is constructed, especially explanatory knowledge, via this process of conjecture and refutation, or guessing and criticism, or uh, creation and creativity and criticism, and biological evolution, where you have random mutations and then selection of those, or variation and selection. They mirror one another, and they're not exactly the same. In particular, the kind of mechanisms that allow us to create explanatory knowledge are intelligently designed. People have minds, they have intentions, they have free will, and so they're able to choose amongst different ways in which they might improve knowledge. Now, this idea of um, creativity, of the ability to create explanatory knowledge, has, I think, a deep connection to the concept of free will and whether or not we have free will, even given determinism. Because the growth of knowledge is inherently unpredictable and we don't know what problems are going to come next, so we don't know where we're going to direct our minds, I think that's where we'll leave it for today. I look forward to the next part. It's um, about fine-tuning, as I've already said, and uh, perhaps in a few days, possibly a week, I'll be able to get to that. See you later.